Our text for tonight is going to be Psalm 128, Uh, but before we turn to that, or before I ask you to turn to that, um, let us, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to be with us as we open his scripture. Pray with me, please. Well, Lord, we come now to the reading of your word and to um, the hearing of it unpacked. And, and now, Lord, we miss our pastor most especially, who has preached in season and out of season, in sickness and in health, time and time again from this pulpit. And he has consistently given us your word. He has preached the whole council. And uh, now I ask, Lord, that you would equip me to stand in his stead as best I can um, and not to give my opinion, uh, but to speak what you have given me to speak and to speak in a way that fortifies and strengthens this congregation and does honor to your gospel and also does honor to the pastor whose pulpit uh, I am temporarily filling. And I pray, Lord, all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Let's look at uh, Psalm 128. And join me, please. Open, t- t- Take your Bible and open it up, if you would. Um, Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine in the very heart of your house, your children like olive plants all around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you out of Zion, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the days of your life. Yes, may you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. May the Lord bless us. Amen. Well, the title for tonight uh, is uh, Work. And you know, titles... I know you're tired of listening to me as an English teacher, but you know, titles, are, <laughs> titles can be uh, or ought to be propositional. They ought to tell you, make some claim about what's to follow. And they do that either by being a predicate or by being an imperative. And in this particular case, um, don't be fooled. Uh, the title, work, up there, is to be read as a verb. It is the imperative. It is not the topic of work. It is the demand, work, right? As in, you work, exclamation mark, right? Um, Psalm 128 tells us something on the subject of work, both the thing, that is the noun, and the action. And in light of that, as I say, read this as an imperative. Now, tonight, uh, 
for the next uh, little while, uh, this will be what is known as an exhortation. Uh, I, in fact, am not entitled to preach. Uh, only a minister has that, can carry that duty. What I may do as an elder from the pulpit is teach and exhort. And so that's what I am going to do tonight. Um, and I think, I think I have a fertile audience here. Because yesterday, uh, in the midst of fall cleanup, while we were over there, for those who missed it, you know, it's 10,000 pounds of chopped rubber that we were throwing in that playground over there. And, and while uh, and there were a lot of kids in there, even little Alani was, was, was struggling to empty a bag, of, uh, a bag that was as big as she was of chopped rubber. And two, two of the boys in the church, who will remain nameless, I, I overheard one of them saying to the other, work or die, work or die. <laughs> so I, I, I think they got it. I think, I think they got the general idea. But I am going to elaborate a bit further on, on, on work. Now, I chose this topic for a couple reasons. The first was simply that uh, from standing up here at congregational prayers and in the course of duties as an elder, I hear many requests uh, related to work, uh, getting it, improving it, uh, changing it, succeeding in it, or prayer requests simply for not having it. And, and that's, so that has been on my heart. And, and secondly, it seems to me, and this is a totally sort of different perspective on the topic, but that in our diligence to live out the admonition that we are not saved by our work, uh, we sometimes err in the other direction, acting as if work doesn't really matter. Uh, one of my favorite um, Christian apologists, John Stone Street of the Colson Center, often says that Christians are called to walk and chew gum at the same time. And by, by that, what he means is that as Christians, uh, we're supposed to have a pretty good bandwidth, and we can absorb several different things at the same time that aren't necessarily in conflict, but might appear that way uh, uh, from a distance. So we can understand that work does not save us, while at the same time, respect how we work and for whom we work and respect that that is important. How we engage in work is a mark of our salvation, and we shall see that in our, in our confessions in a short while. And the third reason for taking on this topic is that there is some need, I think, to unpack what we mean by good work, and that, that term needs to be clarified. For we are a church that is serious about its theology and its worship. We're serious about studying the word, being in prayer, and all of that is good work. But we're not monks or nuns in a monastery, and our daily work also matters. Whether that work is teaching, mothering, building, soldiering, or, or whatever, it matters, and it can and ought to be good work. 
And daily work, for that matter, it, it, it matters to everyone, the saved or the unsaved. Um, I mean, it's not a surprise to you that we spend about a third of our life asleep, and of what's left over, about half of that is spent at what we would call work. And the word work, whether used as a verb or a noun in the NKGV, shows up as many times as the word love. And by the way, that's another word which can be used as either a verb or a noun. Uh, so obviously work is a topic of keen interest in the scripture. So we ought to take a look at it. Well, first of all, let's define what we mean by work, okay? Let's define our terms, uh, at least for the sake of the next half hour or so. Well, let's take the verb. Um, I'll skip defining the noun because the noun is simply the context in which the verb is put into action. So let, let's, let's, let's define the verb to work. What, what does that mean? Okay. Well, for some reason, uh, providential, I, I suppose, I ended up finding a definition for to work that comes from physics. It's the scientific definition of work. And I like it. It's about as neutral as you could ever get. Now, listen to this. Work is the transfer of energy by a force acting on an object as it is displaced. Are, are you with me on that? Work is the transfer of energy by a force acting on an object as it is displaced. Now, what this has to do with the 128th Psalm, we'll, we'll get to that in, in due course. But this suggests that work, whatever it is, is a purposeful action. The scientific explanation says it displaces something. Okay, There's a purpose to it. Somebody had it to want something to go from here to there. That's work. It displaces it. And it also suggests that energy must be expended in the course of work, or else it's not work. There is, as the physicist said, there is a force that transmits energy from one to another. So there is, there is energy being expended. But the physics definition is morally neutral, and so we can't stop there, because, of course, Scripture is not so. So let's then add to our definition that work is a transfer of energy by a force acting on an object as it is displaced for a purpose. And then let's make it more human. How about this? Work is the effort of changing something so that something new is produced that matters to someone else. Work is the effort of changing something so that something new is produced that matters to someone else. Now there is moral weight there, provided that the someone else is righteous. When the Holy Spirit works on your heart and changes it from a stone to flesh, as the Lord told Ezekiel that he would do in 3627, that's work. The Holy Spirit at work. A force moving something or transforming one thing into another. And it matters to the Lord. When the Lord spoke the world into being, he changed nothingness into something. 
and it matters to us. Praise the Lord. When you labor over a child to get him or her out of diapers, and I'm talking here about potty training, and if you've never done that, you, you haven't lived yet. <laughs> you are, are you paying attention, Rhoda? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you are changing, a, you are expending energy to change a behavior from one thing to another. And it matters to you, and it also matters to the child. That's work. Do you see that? It's all the same. And now in the first two verses of 128, blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his way. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy and it shall be well with you. This begins as a statement of general principle. And note, <clears throat> and then in the second verse, it shifts pronouns and it becomes particular. A particular application to someone you, we don't know who that is, uh, that is blessed by work. Now, the pastor is, is very fond of, of, of preaching about <clears throat> how the Bible often gives us an indicative. It tells us what we need to know. And then it gives us an imperative. What must we do? The indicative and the imperative. Well, in this particular case, what, what must we know? That one who fears the Lord is blessed. And then what must we do? We must eat the fruit of the labor of our hands, be happy and be well. In other words, the blessing of the Lord comes through labor. Manna, in case you didn't get the memo, is over with. There is no more free lunch. We are not blessed because we work. We are blessed to work. That is what we're hearing in the first two verses. In other words, this is not an argument that we're saved by our work, although it's not hard to find that interpretation. You, you can misread the first two verses and walk away with that. And I cite, for example, the magazine Woman's Day. And who knew that Woman's Day had biblical exegesis in it? But sure enough, um, there is somebody in there who wrote that verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 128 means, and I quote, God rewards those who work hard, and that can come in a variety of ways. If you continue to put in a solid work ethic, you deserve whatever is the outcome. That is as fine an example of moralistic therapeutic deism as I have seen in a long time, and it is unfortunately... Um, indicative of the state of general Protestant Christianity in this country. But you might throw at me verse 22.8, which says, well, he who sows iniquity will reap sorrow. Or Galatians 6, 7 and 8, which says, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. It's if there is somehow a transactional relationship between the work we do and what subsequently evolves, our salvation. But that's not at all what these, what these passages are talking about. They're not referring to salvation. They're simply referring to the effects of sin. And there's no doubt there is a cause and effect when it comes to sin, but it's not salvation. On the other hand, sometimes 
the rewards of our labor seem disconnected from our righteousness or lack thereof. The text suggests that the work of a righteous man will provide him with his daily bread. Well, what about the work of an unrighteous man? Will he starve? Well, Job points out that sometimes the wicked appear to prosper. In Job 28, we read, Why do the wicked live and become old? Yes, become mighty in power. Their descendants are established with them in their sight and their offspring before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear. Neither is the rod of God upon them and so forth. And, uh, and this comments on the obvious that sometimes very wicked people uh, appear to be prosperous. And you know that to be a fact because you see it yourself. Well, this is met several chapters later in Job in chapter 27 when he finally cuts off his so-called comforters and explains that no matter what they say, he will, still, he will hold fast to his righteousness because, and this is uh, coming from the 13th verse of chapter 27, this is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it is for the sword and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death, and their widows shall not weep. And it goes on from there, making it very clear that there will be justice. Rather than telling us that a man is blessed because of his labor, Psalm 128 tells us that one of the blessings of a righteous man is his labor. And that labor is how our daily bread is to be bestowed. And the final evidence is, is found in Psalm 127, which is joined in theme and language to 128. And if you look to the next Psalm prior to it, you see in the very beginning of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, and so forth. So work itself, absent righteousness, absent a believing heart, is not what we're talking about. It is in vain. And hard work, absent the Lord, is in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, what, you're working hard, but you don't know the Lord? What sort of success do you expect? You are not, you're not blessed, and without that blessing, you don't have the labor that you need. Belief and faith precede work. They come before the work. We find this often in the New Testament. Let's just take one example. Turn with me, please, if you would, to John 10, verses 22 to 29. John 10, 22 to 29. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name 
they bear witness of me. Now, now note that Christ is not saying here that his works make him who he is. He's saying that his works witness to who he is. He was who he is before the works came. The works flowed from who he was. They didn't make him who he was. Now, Christ was mortal and identified himself as a carpenter. He would be a carpenter because that's what he did. He made chairs. But that's not what's going on here. To pick it back up again, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. As I said to you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They shall never perish, nor shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Now, the Jews thought that the work that he did was all this magic stuff, these miracles. What's the real work Christ is doing here? What's he doing? He's speaking to his sheep. He's getting his sheep to follow him. He is giving them eternal life. He is transforming hearts. He is doing work. And who's he doing the work for? He is doing it, says it right there. The works that I do in my Father's name. So we see that faith and belief precedes work. We are not Christians because we do Christian stuff. Okay? Because we are Christians we do things that Christians should do. And we do those things that Christians should do in the name of Christ, because we're Christians. Matthew Henry writes in his commentary on 128 that the blessings about which the psalm celebrates are because the man lives in fear of God and in obedience to him. And one of those blessings is work itself. Work, in other words, does not exist in order to produce a blessing. It is a blessing itself. The blessing, Henry writes, is twofold. They shall have work and the ability to do it, and their daily bread, which comes from God, shall come through that labor. Paul explicitly tells us that we are saved for good works, not because of good works. And that's in Ephesians, among other places, in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, where he says, For by grace, and you know this, is a very famous verse, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which Christ prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So what is good works? Well, our, our confession says in, in chapter 16 that good works are, quote, only such as God hath commanded in his holy word and not such as uh, are devised by men. And the Heidelberg Catechism, question 91, which is next Sunday's question, by the way, tells us that good works are only those done out of true faith, conform to God's law, and are done for his glory, and not those based on our own opinion or human tradition. And I think you can see there's, they're fairly close in that. And I think from this we can say that good works, the particular thing, type of job, in other words, that good works are covers a great many things. Clearly, it is not just limited to the ecclesiastical world. In other words, friends, when the pastor stands up here, he's not the only one doing a good work. 
All of you are doing good work. And when you leave here on a Sunday and report to work on a Monday, you continue to do good work, provided you haven't signed up, you know, to be a, you know, a drug smuggler or something like that, in which case I would have to wonder why you were here in the first place. But at the time of the Reformation, good works to which a man would be called were only four. There were only four things in the Roman Catholic Church back then and today, to this day, there are only four things which are considered a vocation. And the term vocation comes from the Latin for calling, vocal, you get the idea. Vocation is meant to be that which we are called to do, okay? And whatever you are called to do can constitute your good work if it's, if it's righteous. Well, under Catholic theology, there were just four. And they were, or are still, marriage, singleness, priesthood, and the consecrated life. And by consecrated life, they mean nuns and monks and people like that that aren't actually priests but are, you know, in religious orders. And anything else was simply not a good work. It was not a calling. It was not a vocation. Well, Luther rejected this soundly, and he developed a Reformed theology of vocation, which we share is part of our reformed understanding. And Calvin picked up on it, and there's not a lot of daylight between what Luther and Calvin said about it. Luther wrote that with respect to Christian men and, men and women, quote, even their seemingly secular works are a worship of God and an obedience well-pleasing to God, end quote. He included in this works that had no apparent sanctity, he rejected a Christianity in which only the priest gave glory to God, and he taught of what we refer to today as the priesthood of believers. I, I do not believe that was a Luther term, but, um, but that, that he certainly spoke in those, in those terms. And as a priesthood of believers, our work, no matter how common, is, as Luther, and Luther writes, more desirable than all the works of all the monks and nuns, be they ever so laborious and impressive. C.S. Lewis wrote that good works were not necessarily those works that were intrinsically religious. He wrote in his book, Christian Reflections, most men must glorify God by doing to his glory something that is not per se an act of glorifying, but which becomes so by being offered to the Lord. And he cites a verse by uh, the 17th century Christian poet George Herbert, who wrote in a poem called The Elixir from the, from the mid-1600s, Teach me, my God and King, in all things thee to see, and what I do in anything to do it as for thee. And Lewis concludes that the work of a street cleaner and the work of a poet become spiritual in the same way and on the same condition. And it is about for whom they do it, not what they do. The theologian and author Owen Strachan, contemporary writer, points out that when it comes to vocations, as long as they are not unrighteous, there are, he says, no exceptions. And I'm quoting him now, the Christian, whatever his or her calling, 
works in a completely different way than the unbeliever. The Christian serves God, not man. The Christian values man in working and does not see his fellow man as a means to an end. The Christian views all labor as teleological, which is a big word for purposeful, oriented to the renown of God and driven by the reward of God. Whether a house painter, a doctor, or a CEO, these biblical teachings supercharge our daily efforts, imbuing them with unerasable importance and undeniable purpose. Under the gaze of a sovereign God who calls us all to our, la our labors, what matters is that all things are done for him. Do you look at your work like that? Do you look at your work as something you're taking to the Lord? Are you, as, as R.C. Sproul loves to put, loved to put it, living quorum Deo? Do you do that? Returning to Psalm 128, this is why the righteous man, the one who fears the Lord, is blessed. He's blessed in order to work and to do good work. In his commentary on this psalm, Spurgeon says that this is because God is a God of laborers. We are not to leave our worldly callings because the Lord has called us by grace. He will give us daily bread, but upon hard work and honest industry. So while we cannot read this psalm to mean that we are blessed because we work hard, we can also err by making work an idol, and that's certainly common today. And I'm not going to belabor it because you're well aware of that. And the other extreme is simply to avoid work and indulge in sloth. And, well, that's two sides of the same coin. And they both reflect a man who does not fear the Lord. It would be just as doubtful to conclude that a man or a woman is saved if they refuse to work or if they took their work lightly as it would be if they idolized their work and put it before all other things. And other misconceptions about work include seeing it as a necessary evil. And this is a Gnostic view that the Reformation roundly rejected. Work, I hate to break the news to you, is not a curse. And it was not given to man as a curse in Genesis 3. When God told Adam, cursed is the ground for your sake and toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. God's not cursing the ground. He's simply telling Adam the facts of the fall. The ground is cursed because of the fall. All things are corrupted, and Adam and us are going to have to face that. The conditions of work were simply made immeasurably worse by the fall, but work itself has been with us since God told Adam to, to work and keep the garden. And there will be work, I am sure, in the new Jerusalem. And after all, God works to create. He continues to work to sustain he is a worker. Jesus tells the Jews when they complain about his supposed Sabbath violation, my father has been working until now and I have been working. Now the first two verses of 128 are really the meat of this psalm. And the following two describe the blessings of work more fully internal to the family. And it's fairly straightforward and I'm not going to get into it. You can read it there, whereas the final two verses take us back out of the blessings of the family and look at the blessings of work on the community. Work blesses the family internally 
and work also blesses the community. The, the scripture says, and may you see the good of Jerusalem all the day of your life. May the work you do bless the community. And then it closes with taking it even, going even further out and blessing subsequent generations. Yes, may you see your children's children. Will the work you do bless your children's children? Well, a couple applications. First of all, brace yourself here. Work. Are we good on that? Okay. And particularly for the kids, right? And work for you is a little bit different than work for your parents, but work. It is what you are supposed to do. Do not live for Friday night. Do not pretend to work with some get-rich scheme or some phantom labor such as the lottery. Live each day fulfilling your calling, your vocation. Now, part of your work is explicitly for the church, sure, and that varies depending on the person. Part of that work is what Paul speaks of in, Philipp in the Philippians, of working out of your salvation, sanctification. But part of it is working in the world in a way that, to continue quoting from Philippians, shines a light in the world. Understanding that your work is a blessing. When you eat the labor of your hands, you shall be happy, and it shall be well with you. Manna has stopped. There is no more free lunch. Seek the fruit of your labor, whatever that is. And do not measure the worth of your work by a paycheck or by your rank or even by the number and godliness of your children. For all of that is ultimately not in your hands, but in his what is in your hands is how much you submit your labor to the sovereign Lord who gave it to you in the first place. If God is sovereign, and he is, he has called you to some task. There is no one unemployed in the kingdom of God. It doesn't happen. Our psalmist doesn't tell us what sort of labor this man has been called to, but it doesn't matter. Whatever it is, he's doing it. Now, if you chafe at your current work, then don't. Don't follow your heart. Follow the Lord. Pray for your work. If you're ambitious or you wish to change jobs, fine. Pray for it. But in the job, work. Be humble in your calling. The Holy Spirit will make you ready and will equip you for what he intends you to do. He is sovereign. As our confession says, the ability, I quote, the ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. There is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit, end quote. Years ago, when I saw Christians in Baghdad crawl into the sewers in order to clean them out, because there was no one below them in the social pecking order, were they lesser men because they had to do it? Did they? Not at all. Did they enjoy it? I doubt it. But one day the sewer cleaners of Baghdad are going to be right there next to us, praising the Lord. 
under a sovereign Lord, if he calls you to clean sewers, then just get up and get on with it and do it. Work competently is my second application. When the Lord rested from his labors, he said it was good, and so should we. While his ways are not our ways and his perfection is completely beyond our reach, we can at least strive to work as best we can. We are not given work from the Lord in order to do a poor job of it. Perfection is not a biblical goal. Now, excellence might be a nice goal, and occasionally we read of it in the Bible. For example, Bezalel from Judah and Aholiab from Dan, those were the two men who were called out by Moses to build a tabernacle. They were excellent craftsmen, and that probably is not most of us. But we can all strive for basic competence at what we do. And if what we're doing is good work, then be competent at it. Our confession tells us that good work should be done so as to manifest our thankfulness and strengthen our assurance. Why would we want to manifest our thankfulness to the Lord by doing a sorry job at what he gave us to do? If your work, I'm looking at you kids now, is to clean your room, then clean it in thankfulness and do a decent job. Doesn't have to be the cleanest room in the world, but it needs to be done decently. If your job is to serve Caesar under arms, then do it in thankfulness. Serving competently, not perfectly, is a Christian imperative. And lastly, work for others. Verse 5 says, May you see the good of Jerusalem all the day of your life. It goes on to say, May you see your children's children. This isn't work for himself. This is work for others. Here the psalmist prays that the blessings of one's work extends beyond the family and into the entire community. And spare me, this is not social gospel preaching. This is just basic common sense. It's realizing that you and I do not work on the dark side of the moon. We are not sequestered in some Amish community. Work so that you are, that your blessing blesses others. The Westminster Confession says that our work should edify the brethren and adorn the profession of the gospel. Well, we heard in Sunday school today from, uh, from Dave in uh, question 86 that we should do good work in order to show that, quote, we are thankful to God that he may be praised through us that we may be assured of our faith, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. End quote. And what more should we ask than a chance to do just that? May our approach, our approach to our work be such as to never to draw into question our allegiance to him who has saved us and may our work be a light in this world. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you have given us labor as a blessing.
but we chafe because this is a fallen wor world and labor is hard. But you will not give us work to do that you can, will not equip us to do. Why would you? Give us faith, Lord, to stand fast and complete the tasks that you give us in an orderly and decent fashion, knowing that we need not be the most wonderful worker in the world. We just need to be competent. And help us to do our work, Lord, in such a way that it makes us different. Say, people ask, what is it about that guy or that girl? What is it about the way she does her job? And if we can do that, Lord, then we are truly blessed. Pray this in your name. Amen.